The actual resolution is the minute of the meeting, but it's the text of what's in the minute is the resolution. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 323 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Imagine you have a new client, a discretionary trust with regular income that is paid to beneficiaries on a regular basis. But as it turns out, the trust has no official trust distributions, no resolutions to distribute the trust income ever. Right from the start, there is nothing. And the trust was established many years ago. What do you do? This is the question Jeff Steen of Brownright Steen Lawyers in Sydney will discuss with you in this episode. The rules are in the, really just relate to the Income Tax Assessment Act. And the Act requires that as at the end of a financial year, in order for beneficiaries to be assessed on shares of income of a trust estate, the entitlements of those beneficiaries must be known with certainty. And that's not so much having a dollar X amount, because quite often we don't know what that dollar X amount is going to be, but it's the fact that there was an entitlement that had been conferred. And Heidi, you might recall when Bamford case was handed down, there was some discussion in the profession about, well, what do you do? Because, you know, in practice as it then was, and I'm sure nobody does this anymore, but in practice as it then was, it was quite common for a client to come and see their accountant or their tax agent some months after the year end and explain what has happened and the accountant would go through with a spreadsheet and work out, well, this is the optimal way this trust would have distributed its income had it been able to do so. And all accountants you know, would then get in their time machine, go back to the 30th of June and just assume that the client trustee had conferred upon the beneficiaries with a binding resolution before 30th of June what it was that the accountant was recommending they do as at, let's pick a figure, August, May, whatever day it was following the 30th of June. And that's a little bit of a legal fiction. And one of the problems was that the tax office, in some respects in their response to Bamford, perpetuated that fiction by saying, we will not spend resources if you, the client, have entered the resolution or made the resolution sometime before the end of August. Just the trust deeds don't bear that out. So almost all the trust deeds anyway require the power to be exercised before 30 June and the Act requires the power to be exercised before 30 June. So the theory is that if the trustee fails to exercise that power, then you look and see, well, who is entitled to the share of income in the absence of the trustee exercising a power? And that's when you look at what we typically call default beneficiaries. <clears throat> and so one of two things will happen depending on the wording in the trustee. So some trustees will say, if the trustee does not exercise its discretion, it's to be held for such of A and B and call them default beneficiaries or principal beneficiaries in equal shares. And others say that if the trustee fails to exercise a discretion, there is no automatic conferral upon a beneficiary and therefore the trustee 
must pay tax because the income will be deemed to have accumulated to the trust fund. I might pause there, Heidi, in case you have any questions. The first question is, it's usually older trustees that don't have a default beneficiary, unless, of course, the lawyer's practice makes a conscious decision not to have a default beneficiary for asset protection. But usually, I can imagine most modern trustees do include a default beneficiary. But of course, the old ones before Bamford wouldn't, correct? I'm going to say, since the 1980s, most competent trustees will have had um, a default beneficiary or been deliberately designed not to do so. You mentioned asset protection is one reason that that may happen. Sometimes it was because you just didn't want to have any look-through provision. Is it always quite clear whether a deed has a default beneficiary or is it often in legalese that for an amateur who doesn't have legal training that sometimes it's actually quite difficult to determine whether a deed has a default beneficiary or not? I think rather than saying it's amateur, whether an amateur can read it, anybody who is literate can read it. It's really more of a reflection, less on the reader and more on the author of the deed. So the only reason people won't be able to work out is there a taker in default or a default beneficiary is because the deed will either be clearly written or it'll be, if it's one of my deeds, gobbledygook. Shall we quickly look at this trust deed, for example, we have as an example and see whether it has a default beneficiary in it because I couldn't see one. If we go to clause nine in this deed, then what it reads is, if the trustee fails to validly exercise the trustee's discretion under clause six or eight, assuming that, that those are the two clauses where there is a discretion, which um, six is the general discretionary beneficiary clause and eight is the accumulation power, right? then the income will be held by the trustee in accordance with the following rules. So 9.1, the named beneficiaries who are alive. So that's rule one, and there are three rules. And the named beneficiaries, uh, you look at the schedule, and the schedule has... Two names. Two names in the in there. So, so those people would be the takers in default or the default beneficiaries. But if there are no named beneficiaries alive, that is, let's assume that both of them die, then you look to who are their next of kin, provided the next of kin was within the eligible beneficiaries. And then if there's no next of kin, right, even if there are other eligible beneficiaries, then the income is deemed to have been accumulated. And that's just the way this deed reads. So even though this trustee doesn't say default beneficiary anywhere, it just says failure to exercise discretion. So then there is a default beneficiary. Yeah, quite often. It's not like the yellow brick road where you can see um, a very clear pathway who it should be. And there's nothing that not necessarily, you know, it's not held up in lights. You've, you've just got to read the deed and understand this is the way that it's put together. And you're quite right, Heidi. People who are experienced in reading deeds will have a better idea as to which clauses to look or where to try and find the relevant provision. So the lesson is basically there might be a default beneficiary even if the trustee doesn't say default beneficiary anywhere. And the other word to look for is basically exercise of discretion and a clause, what happens when the trustee doesn't exercise its discretion, what happens then? If you then have rules there that basically determine what happens when the trustee doesn't exercise discretion, then you do have a default beneficiary, even though you thought you didn't. Yeah, that's right. Should all trustees change that don't have a default beneficiary, unless it's a conscious decision not to have one? I guess it's a point that you really should review. 
I think you need to review it, and I think you need to review it in line with succession planning as well, because you can see for that particular deed, there's an order of succession in that default beneficiary provision, which may not be consistent with what the clients want to do. That is the first point, default beneficiary or not. The second thing I wanted to ask you is, yes, in theory, we need to have presently entitled beneficiaries as of 30th of June or at the end of the financial year for income to be assessed to those beneficiaries. But why such an impractical approach? It worked perfectly fine for accountants to do it whenever they were doing the accounts for the trust to then work out who's getting what and then to prepare the relevant trust distributions. Why make this such an impractical approach where that now pushes God-fearing citizens, if they have a trust deed without a default beneficiary, into illegal acts or even, I don't even know whether it's a criminal act. Is it a criminal act to sign a backdated document? It is a criminal act to sign a backdated document. It is not a criminal act to sign, to date a document the day it is executed, but that reflects something that has happened at a particular earlier time. And, and what I mean by that is that if you have a company that's a trustee or you have individuals as trustee and there are more than one trustee or more than one director, then it's possible for them to make that resolution in um, to make that resolution by way of a minute. So they, they can do it verbally, have a minute of their meeting, and then record what happened at that meeting sometime after the meeting. That is perfectly legitimate and you're entitled to do that. Yes, but if that meeting didn't actually take place on the 30th of June... Then it would be say- fraudulent to assert that it did so. Exactly. In in our scenarios where a trust distribution was forgotten on the 30th of June, of course, they would also have forgotten to have the meeting. So you would still be back into fraud and fraud. Is fraud a criminal act as well? Sure is. And, and if it's conspiracy to defraud the Commonwealth of Revenue, that carries a penalty of about 10 years at the moment. Used to be 20 years, but it's now a maximum penalty of 10 years. But that is actually water on my argument. And that is why adopt such an impractical approach that pushes otherwise law abiding citizens into criminal acts that carry a possible prison sentence? Yeah, Heidi, I think we should nominate you for the Tax Law Reform Commission because this is. This is a really good point. I mean, you want people to actually get advice. You want them to be able to do things properly. And there's nothing wrong with with saying in theory, well, why can't you just simply, after the year end, determine it? So let's just assume for a minute that our trust deeds permitted you to do so. Okay? So the first thing is, as far as the tax law goes, the trustee has to permit the conferral of the entitlement to take place after the 30th of June. And many of these trustees won't do that. They won't allow you to. And they won't allow you to precisely because they want to comply with the law as it is currently written. But let's just say that, that that's what happened and you, or you could amend the trustees to permit it. You know, why don't you just take account, well, this is in fact what's happening in practice. And it makes it easier for everybody if you allow people to do their affairs, put their affairs together properly. But if I wear my tax administrator's hat on, there's two things that are going on. Firstly, historically, the reasons why these provisions were written was that you were dealing at a time when discretionary trusts or family trusts as we know them now were not as common. So you're looking at provisions which were essentially trusts which were equivalent of testamentary trusts or or things where somebody was holding it 
honour trust for someone else and so that you knew with certainty who was going to be entitled to the income from that trust relationship. And that's just a historical bubble has continued up to present day and, and will probably continue for as long as we have the trust taxation regime as we have. The second reason wearing my administrator's cap is to say, well, hold on a minute, if we permit people to travel through time in the way we're talking about, then it's a system which is ripe for abuse. How can I then prevent somebody you know, years later not saying, well, actually the income for this particular period, that's now determined in this, in this particular way you know, with all the benefit of hindsight? And so I don't want to minimise the or, or to permit, I want to minimise the opportunities for abuse. I want to make sure that people are complying. And so... The lesson here is it's not that difficult for people to comply. If you imagine that most people are preparing their tax returns for lodgement, let's say towards the middle of May, you know, that's you know, commonly when most people are, are doing their lodgements. And you say, look, at the time you're doing your lodgement for the, let's call it the 2021 year, which will be in, in May 2022, why don't we prepare our trust resolution for 30 June 2022? Tell me what you're doing. And, and there's no reason why you can't do that. It won't necessarily be with the precision that you would like to do it, but then again, even if you got to 30 June, you won't necessarily know with precision the income of the trust to be able to make that allocation in the way that you would otherwise like to. When you have to afford beneficiaries, do you need to do anything? So do you still need any paperwork or because you have a default beneficiary clause in the trust deed, if there hasn't been a distribution statement being prepared, you just distribute according to the default beneficiary clause in the deed and there is no nothing to do, there's nothing to sign? Is it like that? There's nothing that a beneficiary needs to sign. In fact, it's the other way around, Heidi. If you're a beneficiary and you don't know that you've been made entitled to a share of income, you may want to have a disclaimer for that income. And can I give you an example if we, we talk back to our Bamford theory? Yes. So if you remember in Bamford, what happened was that there was an amount which was for trust law purposes, an expense of the trust estate, but for tax law purposes was not a deduction. So that in the trust at the relevant time, you might say, well, we've got $1,000 of trust law income, but we've got 100 thousand dollars of tax law income and so if you are entitled to the share of the income of the trust all you're entitled to in terms of cash is ten thousand but you've got to pay tax on a hundred thousand now when you're talking about things that are fair and unfair how does that strike you yes right? so so if you're in that position as a beneficiary the law says as soon as you find out about that you be, have become entitled to a share of income you have a right to disclaim that share, okay? And, and this is a good example of where you might want to do it. A long time ago, people used to insert in their uh, minutes or their trusts and, and you know, just partly as a joke and partly in frustration about the process, they would say the default beneficiary for this year, it, you know, for everything else is going to be the, the treasurer or the commissioner of taxation. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> irrespective of whether the, the person would otherwise fall within the class of beneficiaries. And the idea was to try and catch those silly types of uh, situations. 
that's what you would need to do. But otherwise than that, it's simply that a beneficiary has the entitlement conferred upon them. It's a unilateral decision by the trustee. Occasionally, in a trustee that may also require the consent of someone else, such as an appointor, a protector or a guardian. But typically, it's a unilateral act by a trustee. This problem that the Bamford case covered, that is usually no longer encountered because most trustees nowadays have a definition of trust income, and that usually is in connection with the income tax income, correct? My preference, for example, is not to define income as being tax law income. Again, you know, there are reasons why you may not want to do that. Just giving the trustee some flexibility to determine what, for trust law purposes, should be determined to be the principles that are used to calculate trust law income. And the tax law principles should simply follow from that. So I wouldn't say that it's abolished because all trustees have a definition of income. I know there are some people that advocate quite fiercely that that ought to be the case. I am not one of them. The, the real issue at, in Bamford was the issue about two things. One was to do with streaming. That's where all the streaming cases or, or statutes came from. But the second thing was it was about what was known as the, the fixed amount or proportionate share approach to working out tax liability. And what that meant was that Could you do a resolution that said, I am giving $1,000 to beneficiary one, $1,000 to beneficiary two, and the balance to beneficiary three? Or do you have to say, I'm giving X percent to beneficiary one, X percent to beneficiary two, and the balance to, to beneficiary three? And the court found on the percentages side that that was the way that it was set out. And that's what the courts found, that that was the more appropriate way of working out how you conferred entitlements for tax law purposes. Yes, in theory, there might be the option to disclaim the income, but that is usually highly unlikely unless we have this mismatch between trust income and income tax income. But usually a disclaimer, I think, can imagine, is fairly unusual. It's more common when you've got tax disputes. And I know I'm, I'm jumping around, Heidi, but if we go back to Bamford, for example, you're talking about this is why the idea of having a definition of income in trustees, which equates to tax law income is popular because it means that you didn't have to worry about those percentages. Because by definition, if you're saying the first thousand dollars is going to beneficiary one, the percentage became irrelevant. But where it where it's interesting is if you go back in years, you know, and we go back to the 18th and 19th centuries, you had all these concepts with trust law about who was entitled to the income from a trust and who was entitled to the capital. And a lot of these types of trusts were deceased estates. So I might say, I give everything to, in my will, I give everything to my trustees for my wife to have the income during her lifetime, but the capital after she dies to go to my children. And you had to work out who's getting charged with these expenses. Are these income expenses or are these capital expenses? Whose responsibility is that? Who pays the tax on it? And then when you've got in our law, as it is at the moment, you've got this distinction between income gains and capital gains. And so if you had an income gain, that would go to the income beneficiary. And if you had a capital gain, that would go to the capital beneficiary. And it's possible under our law, as it is now written, because of the way capital gains tax works, where it deems the capital gain to be income, you know, for the purpose of calculating the tax, that you end up with a position where you can say, look, I've earned... You know, very similar to what we've said before. I've earned $100 of income 
but I've got, you know, a million dollars of a capital gain. And it may very well be in a trustee that your person that's entitled to your income is going to be different to the person entitled to the capital. And in those circumstances, the income beneficiary, if the trust deed does not define income, you could have a position where the income beneficiary becomes entitled to the, the $100 or $1,000 of income but has to pay tax on the million dollars and $1,000. Again, I would never advise anybody to do what I'm about to say, but if you imagine that a trustee determined that I'm going to set aside this income in the year I've made this whopping capital gain for a charity and I actually pay the $1,000 to the charity, so the, the, the obligation to pay the income is discharged, it's not a sham, then the charity in theory would be entitled to say, I'm getting that $1,000, I've got all the cash I'm entitled to. I would otherwise, if I was a taxpayer, have to pay tax on the million, but the million just sits in the trust and gets accumulated for the long-term benefit of capital beneficiaries. So that's why these nuanced things, even though they're quite fascinating for those that that read trustees and they're quite frustrating for the revenue authorities, but it's important to be on top of them. It's not just a general rule of saying, let's do this or let's do that. It's understanding how do these provisions work and how do they fit together. And do you have any court cases regarding forgotten distribution statements? No, there are are plenty of court cases that I'm aware of where somebody has had to get in a witness box, quite often an accountant, to explain the circumstances on which a particular trustee resolution was prepared. And I'm anybody that's listening that's involved in the preparation of trustee minutes. I would bear that in mind if you're ever asked to do them. If it's ever an issue, somebody is going to be in a witness box and somebody is going to be in danger of being referred to the DPP. Except, again, if it's if it's minutes of a meeting, it's a lot easier to assert that those minutes have been prepared properly. But, again, if it's a minutes that are purporting to be of a meeting that never took place, that is fraudulent, that is do not collect $200, go directly to jail. And the DPP is the Department of Public Prosecution? Director, director of Public Prosecutions, yes. Oh, I see. So that's an acronym we don't really want anything to do with. Are there key words or specific elements that need to be included in a trust distribution? No, you, you want to make sure that you're referring to the correct year of income and you're identifying the beneficiaries properly. Yeah, and then just yeah. the date. So obviously refer- the date when it's made is critical. Identifying if it's a, if it's a trustee company, identifying the, who the trustee is, who's making the, the resolution. And then identifying the directors. If it's a trustee company, identifying the directors who are making the... And if it's a resolution as opposed to a minute of a meeting, you need to make sure all the directors sign it. If it's individual trustees, then you just have a minute of a meeting between the individual trustees. If it's a corporate trustee, then you need all directors. It's also a minute of meetings, isn't it? I always get confused with these different... Yeah, it's a minute of a meeting as well. So it's basically always a minute of a meeting. Beyond this minute of a meeting, you then also need the actual resolution, correct? Well, so the, you... the, the actual resolution is the, is the minute of the meeting. The minute okay. of the meeting is the text of what's in the minute is the resolution. So that basically means you just need one document. Yeah. The short thing is get advice, get a tax agent, get a, a competent accountant. The tax officer says it doesn't really matter whether you've got your own tax affairs or you've got your affairs through a trust. Make sure if you've got a trust anywhere that you're doing it properly. If you inherit an estate or if you're inheriting a trust from someone else, ask the question. Don't be shy. Go and find out. What do I need to do? Make sure I do it properly.
Welcome back. So if you have a trust with forgotten trust distribution resolutions, the default beneficiary in the deed is your saving grace and your only savior. If the deed lists the default beneficiary, all is well as long as all the payments over the years went to this particular default beneficiary. If they didn't, if they went to somebody else, then of course we have another problem on our hands because of course the default beneficiary won't want to pay tax on payments they never received. And this leads us to a question I forgot to ask Jeff. So if you have a default beneficiary, and let's just assume they are the ones who received all the payments over the years, then you just include the trust income in their individual tax returns for this default beneficiary, possibly with an amendment, but then all is sorted. But mentioning the amendment, that is the question I forgot to ask Jeff, and that is, what happens if the amendment period for the individual tax returns is already passed? And from memory, we had a similar question where we discussed Division 7a deemed dividends. And I think from memory, if the amendment period was already passed, then you didn't have to amend. And so in this case, that could save you. The default beneficiary should have included the trust distributions in his assessable income, but he didn't because he didn't know. And now, the amendment period has passed, so no need to amend. That is my understanding. I should have checked this with Jeff Steen. Let's do that next time we talk to him. But I am pretty sure that this is the right answer. And so the past amendment period could save you for quite a few of those years where the trust income hadn't been distributed. However, if the deed has no default beneficiary, then the income is assessed to the trustee. And if the trustee hasn't lodged income tax returns for those years, or he lodged no return necessary, then the amendment period never started and hence never ended. So all income is assessed to the trustee at top marginal tax rates, unless, of course, your clients still happen to find the missing trust distributions. Quickly, a different topic. Here's a question I asked Jeff Steen after the interview. Why do replaceable rules not apply when there's only one director and one shareholder? So if you have a company that doesn't have a constitution because there's only one director and one shareholder, I always thought, well, then the replaceable rules apply. But now I've realized that the replaceable rules actually don't apply when there's only one director and one shareholder. So that basically means that a company with no constitution and just one director and one shareholder basically has nothing. It has neither the constitution nor the replaceable rules, but maybe it doesn't need anything because we are just dealing with one person. So this is in section 135. The section does not apply to a private company while the same person is both its sole director and sole shareholder. So it's not so much that it's a single director person, but it's got to be the same person as director and shareholder. And the reason why you don't need it is because it's the one person having, when you go back to a, a constitution of a company is a contract between the shareholders and the company. And where you've only got one person performing those roles, there's no point, you don't need to have that contract in place. So constitution and also the replaceable rules are basically just managing the relationship between the different shareholders and the different directors, etc. But when everything is just one person, then you don't need it. Correct. Welcome back. In the next episode, episode 324, we will start a new mini-series about property development. 
Andrew Andreev of Andreev Lawyers in Sydney will talk about how to structure different development projects. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.